Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brook, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Asia Atherton, I am so excited to be interviewing you for She's the Boss Chats. I love everything that you do. I had the delight of uh, emceeing at your gala event earlier this year, and I was totally blown away by what you're doing for women. So tell everybody what it is you do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, where, where to start? Well, the gala was connected to a charity that I established called Empowered Women in Trades which yep. focuses on supporting vulnerable and at-risk women into the skilled trade industry. We've also got a social enterprise that has a wider remit that works with uh, women from all different backgrounds, encouraging them into the skilled trades industry as well, whether that's the apprenticeship pathway, whether that's what's getting called ticketed roles, so shorter courses and getting qualifications to do things like electrical spotting or work in the civil construction area. So we don't just focus on apprenticeships, it's all non-university career pathways into your trade-based industries of construction and manufacturing. Amazing. And I just love it because it's about bloody time someone did something like that. And I love it that it's you. But tell everybody, why have you set this up? What happened? Was there a bit of a light bulb moment? There was a light bulb moment. So I'm actually a fifth generation plumbing family. So my great, great grandfather was one of the founding contractors of the Master Plumbers Association. Wow. And yeah. And he was also on the plumbing union that got the eight hour working day across the line. So there's a lot oh my of God. family history in plumbing. And I had my own strong unconscious biases that I was a girl. So the plumbing or the manufacturing uh, career pathways, I never really asked my dad about them. I would always go into the office and do work experience in the finance department or the marketing department or the reception department. And we have this beautiful manufacturing facility that was right on my back doorstep. And I never really asked dad to go in there and have a crack at everything until right. I'd finished my accounting qualifications. And dad actually said to me, off you go now, you've got to learn the other side of the family company and I want you to work six months in the factory. So there I go, put my steel cap boots on, put down my Excel spreadsheets and uh, dress up. Were in you reluctant boots. at that oh, stage? Were yeah. you like, oh my God, why is he making me do this? Yeah, I can remember my first day. I was so nervous putting the high-vis on, the awkward steel cap shoes, which is the first time I'd worn them. And I just felt like, I don't know, a penguin in a boardroom or something, <laughs> just really out of place. All the guys in the factory knew me and they were so beautiful and welcoming and everything like that. And so, yeah, I settled into my first day and started getting my hands on the tools and absolutely loving it. And then I got to be taught how to do some basic welding and that's what lit up my soul. I was just like, if I was not 29 at the time, a very high-level dressage rider with a hex debt, a mortgage, horses that were eating better than myself at the time with the, <laughs> with the food bill that I was, that I was paying for them. I definitely would have considered going and doing a welding apprenticeship and still on my bucket list is I want to get some of my welding tickets 
out there. So I absolutely loved it. And I just started to think, wow, why are more women not considering these career pathways? And when I was at uni and doing accounting and finance, my passion was always understanding the financial hardship of Australian women and what that does to our economy as a whole as well. With It's shocking, uh, isn't it? It's shocking. <laughs> it is. So there's a lot of like economic flow-on effects of women being uh, either unemployed or on low casualised work and everything like that. So I'd never really put the two and two together. And at the time when I was in the factory, Australian women only represented 2% of the skilled trades industry. You know, th- that blows me away because I know in um, engineering, because I've been working with a whole lot of women in, in um, STEM, and the women in engineering is like 18%. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so crap. To hear that only 2% of women are in trades is kind of shocking. Exactly. So we've recently just tipped into uh, 3%, but it's taken us 10 years. <laughs> 10 years to go from 1% to 3%. (laughs) So, Hacia, what about the new law that says that uh, building companies have to have 50% women? I mean, where are those women going to come from? Well, that's exactly, we we set up our organisation before all of this came through. So, there's definitely a big push now, which is is great. Which is great. Again, (laughs) the push needs to happen there's not enough awareness. You can't just say, all right, the industry wants women now. Women don't understand the opportunities, don't understand the pathways. And trades are very, you need to put your hands on metal or your hands on wood or be in a manufacturing or, or on a live construction site to see if you're going to enjoy that environment. You know, being an accountant or a marketing person or a legal person, okay, you're all working in an office, but being a welder on a construction site, it's very different to being a welder in a manufacturing site. So our programs are very much designed to allow women to not only understand the, the trades, whether that's being an electrician, but what being an electrician looks like in the manufacturing industry, in the civil construction, in commercial construction, in uh, large-scale residential, because being an electrician or a sparky looks very different in those four different areas. So yeah, when you're and I going, mean, yeah, sorry, I was when, just going to go for somebody who doesn't know, like me, and I would think ninety percent of the women that's listening, even just you reeling off those four different types, I'm like, I didn't even know there were four different types. Well, exactly, and. Plumbing, for example, there's six different plumbing licenses that you can get. So right. people think plumbing's just all about sanitary and toilets and being in dirty ditches where a gas fitter, which is a form of plumbing, just works with uh, gas appliances and gas lines. There's right. roofing plumbers that are always up on roofs and everything like that. Mechanical services that are dealing with air, so air conditioning, heating, all of that kind wow. of stuff. Wow, so, right. Yeah, and that's all in the plumbing sector as well. So what we aim to do is exactly empower women with that knowledge of being a plumber is not just being a plumber. You need to work out what industries you want to work in and what kind of plumber you want to be. It's like being a doctor. You can be a heart surgeon, you can be a brain surgeon. The same thing of specialising in the trades happens. And do you go into schools? And sorry, and then we're going to ask about your life in a minute, but I'm fascinated by all of this. Do you go into schools? How do you get the girls to give it a go? 
Yeah, so we get really good uh, feedback from the schools. So we do two things. We take the trays to the schools and do some sessions in schools where they're getting to cut pipes, join them, strip back wires, you know, wire up um, a PowerPoint or things like that. But we also have immersive days where we get the kids out onto either a construction site or into a manufacturing facility. So they get to experience the trades as well as the real-life environment. You are seriously amazing. I have to say, I knew that when I first met you, but the more more you're talking, the more I'm going, oh, my God. All right. Well, so this um, podcast is very much about your entrepreneurial journey or your career journey to date. So can you take me back? You're a fifth-generation plumber. What did your mum do and do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, so my brother is a plumber. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) If you had said he was an electrician, I would have gone, what? (laughs) No, so he's a plumber and he's now the CEO of the family company that manufactures medical infection control equipment. So that's what the family company does. And my mum, she's probably where I get all of my philanthropic side from. So she has her own charity uh, called the School Broadcasting Network. And she teaches from primary school up to secondary school uh, radio skills. So how to run a radio show and interview skills and research skills and everything like that. Well, how does she know all about that just as a matter of interest? Yes, so she... Oh, she's been in the, she's had her own radio shows for about 15 years now. So she's done it herself and I'm not quite sure how she eventually got into it. She's always been into media and presenting and everything like that. So yeah, so that's, I guess, where I get a lot of my philanthropic. My dad's a fantastic businessman and my mum's a philanthropic woman That's exactly why I ask, because often it is the role models of your parents that will affect what you decide to do. Okay, so where did you grow up and did you enjoy school? (laughs) So I, my parents (laughs) got divorced. (laughs) Yes and no is the answer to that. I grew up everywhere. So my parents got divorced when I was quite young. I was seven and my mum moved out to our country property. So I went uh, to Highlands Primary School, which was a tiny little country primary school for a little while. And Is this in Victoria there... or New South Wales? Yeah, in Victoria. Where's in Victoria. the Highlands in Victoria? Where, where, what, what, where exactly were you? Have you heard of Yay? <laughs> yes, so, yes. Yes, it's just about a half an hour drive out of Yay. Right. So we're talking just for anyone who's listening. That's a few hours out of Melbourne, isn't it? Yay. Yeah, yeah. So about, yeah, two hour drive out of Melbourne, um, literally in the Highlands. So very mountain, mountain area. So I went to a little primary school there. I reckon all up, there was probably 20 kids there, 20, 30 kids. Oh, how cute. (laughs) Did you love it? I loved that part of it. Um, And definitely a country kid. So I got to ride my pony all the time and play, you know, play, build cubby houses in the bush and do all that kind of stuff. Um, And from there I went to St. Mary's College Seymour, which again was a good country country. school. Yeah, yeah, good country school. Uh, Our uniform was basketball shorts and a a pullover kind of thing. We'd play footy on the oval with the boys and basketball and all that. 
So I went from that kind of country upbringing to Ryerson Girls School, which is a <laughs> private girls school. Even the way Melbourne. you say it, you're so funny. So what year did you end up going there, year nine? Year eight. So that was a massive shock to the system. Um, I All remember, these prim and proper girls. <laughs> oh, I just remember the uniforms. I remember being in the uniform shop with my dad going, are you kidding me? Like there's a sports uniform, a summer sports uniform, a winter sports uniform, a summer uniform, a winter uniform, a this or that. And, and a whole like, heap of rules around it and what you're going to have to wear or you're going to get that, told and off. And the hat, this hat and the blazer and I <laughs> – I'd gone from like basketball shorts, a polo top and like a, a pullover jumper for winter and that was it, uh, to now four different uniforms. You can't wear your sports uniform to school. You've got to change into your yes. sports uniform at school. So I was a bit a uh, deer in the headlights when I went to Wrighton and I probably enjoyed school up until then. So I got bullied a fair bit at Wrighton being the country girl Oh, so they all, that's the other thing about those schools, I think, that they really know how to pick on um, you if you're a bit different. And so obviously they just went after you, did they? Yeah, they did. And I think because I went, came from a co-ed school, so of course at the tram stop I was comfortable socialising with the boys. I was very active in sports, so I didn't want to sit down and tear my legs and read Dolly at lunchtime. I wanted to play footy <laughs> and basketball and do all this kind of stuff. So I naturally graduate, uh, you know, lent towards hanging out with the boys a lot more. So at lunchtime I used to sneak out of Wrighton up to the Trinity's boys school and play footy with them or basketball with them, which you can imagine what the Wrighton girls said that I was doing. Well, the girls wouldn't have liked it and the teachers wouldn't have liked it either, I wouldn't have thought. No, and especially because I've come back pretty dishevelled after playing footy all (laughs) lunchtime. So Dirty there was knees. a lot of yeah, a lot of <laughs> a lot of rumours around what I was doing at um, Trinity, but I've always just been that kind of I can't sit still. Really love getting active and all that kind of stuff. So, and I was also quite um, although I'm dyslexic, so I did have some troubles with spelling and everything like that. I was very academic as well, but because I was dyslexic and I would play up in school a lot the students, the female students there were always teasing me that I was um, cheating because I got good grades, but I was such a dis- disruptor oh. in the classroom. So it was a pretty boy, tough oh, time boy. at Ryerson. <laughs> it does it does teach you a few life lessons though, doesn't it? How to, I remember going to, I went to boarding school and I'll never forget uh, going there and one girl said to me, what's your name? And I'd grown up with three brothers with my mum and dad in the army. And I said, oh, my name's Julianne, call me Jan. And the whole school decided to just pick on me. And any time I came in the room, they'd go, oh, it's Julianne, call me Jan. And it just went through the school. It was horrible. I still, I I reckon I'm traumatised by it. So talk to me about your dressage, though. Were you mad about horses outside of school? Was this going on in the background? Yeah, so I used to do more eventing. So I started off, you know, pony club, barrel racing, all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, from from that grew into an eventer. But I had a bad horse riding accident. Well, I've had two bad. I had a semi-bad horse riding accident eventing and the doctors advised that if I was to continue riding that I didn't do eventing because of the risk with the jumping and even if you've got little the safe, did they know what horse, was well little did they know what was coming, coming. The but corner. what so 
So what age were you where you decided eventing wasn't right for you? Uh, so that happened, I would have been 26 when I decided, okay, um, oh. I'll go and just focus on dressage. Oh, I didn't realise. So you were doing that up until the age of 26. So you'd done a lot yeah, by that stage. Yeah. How old were you when you took up working with the horses? Or was that in high school? I mean, what, when you were at Wrighton, were you riding on the weekends? Yeah, so I fell in love with horses. I think they don't have them anymore, but they used to have the pony rides at the races. So my dad used to take me to the you know, the Melbourne Cup Spring Melbourne Carnival Cup. and they used yeah. to have the little pony rides. And I think I would have been like three or four and he put me on one of those horses and I was just like, again, 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 again. So wow, <laughs> that's where the love started. I got my first pony honey babe when on my seventh birthday so oh right rock stars she definitely taught me (laughs) we had a fun game of her trying to get me out of the saddle or me learning how to stay in the saddle oh don't even say that (laughs) oh my god having grown up with I, I grew up in Berwick which at the time was like a little country town and all the girls I went to school with rode and they would tell me stories like you're just saying now makes me feel a little bit sick um, I had one girl I remember and I used to go, no, the, uh, the I hate horses, one bit me. And she said, oh, mine bit me this morning. So I just turned around and bit it back. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God. So for, for those of us that aren't horsey, it sounds so brave of you with all the, you know, I had a little horse that just always wanted to get me off. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, the amount of times we'd come up to a jump and I jumped the jump, but the horse was still on the other side and she slammed her brakes on and I've gone over the jump. Over the the top. The horse is standing on the other side. And lived to smile about it. Okay, so when you finished your time at Wrighton, which you probably (laughs) were very, very happy to finish, what did you do next? What was the next step? So I actually started off in law, so I originally wanted to be a commercial (laughs) law barrister. (laughs) Right. And the irony of that, you know, young 18, 19-year-old me um, working in Owen Dixon Chambers and just seeing the way female barristers were treated by the legal system was just really shocking and I thought, wow, I didn't want to take this fight on and I didn't want to have to become the woman you had to become in those days to really thrive and thrive in in that uh, area. And my deciding moment was I was actually shadowing a female barrister and she was having quite a hard time from the fellow male barrister across across the side of the courtroom to her. And she was standing up for herself and didn't cross the line, but one of the judges said, oh, I'll excuse that comment because I assume you're on your period. And I oh thought, my God, oh, my God, if this is what a judge is saying, and she just had and to sit down. And thinks it's okay. Yeah, she thinks just it's... had to sit down and shut up. And I thought, wow, no. that's just not for me. As much as I love the law and love the concept of being a uh, uh, commercial law barrister just that treatment of her and being so young as well I was horrified and I thought I'm 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 not prepared for this fight uh so I transferred into psychology management marketing got a bit disheartened about university so I left and I did a year of fashion design oh yeah (laughs) you have um, been around the traps (laughs) I have been 
And I absolutely loved that and it taught me a lot. But again, after spending, I was a, I was a model at the time. So after really leaning into the fashion were. industry, um, yeah. I, I decided the fashion industry also wasn't for me. So <laughs> um was a little bit lost and went and did my financial planning qualifications and became a financial was that planner. Just, so was that just i I'll just go and do that as backup because I don't like any of the other things I've done or was that dad saying go and get it or why did you no, do the financial planning? Dad, dad had always been pushing for accountant because he's like, you're good with numbers, you should do accounting and I was kind of rebelling against what parents thought I should do at the time. So um, I thought... He's right about the good with numbers, but I don't want to be an accountant. I'm going to go be a financial planner. And I really enjoyed, again, the concept of financial planning, but the industry just did not align with my morals. And I started getting really depressed uh, about how the industry put a lot of pressure on financial planners, as we saw in the Royal Commission, to do a lot of things that probably weren't overly ethically right. (laughs) So I only lasted about 18 months in that industry because I was putting a lot of my clients in the best products that were for them, but that wasn't for the company that I was working for. So I was getting a lot of pressure from my bosses that I wasn't putting the clients in that company's products (laughs) and I was putting them in competitors' products. Oh, my God. It was all just a bit too much. So I. It's all very political by the sounds of it, that one. It was, and, you know, the Royal Commission definitely cleaned up a lot of stuff that was happening um, in that industry, and the Royal Commission was definitely needed, but I just, I couldn't hack it anymore. So I kind of came back to the family fold a little bit uh, lost, and I started working in customer relations for our family company. And And this is, let me just ask, is this sort of 22, 24 kind of age, or what sort of age are you now? So about about (coughs) 24. Yeah, about 24. So I came back to the family company about then Yeah, and kind of thought, all right, I'm going to listen to dad and I'll go back to uni and start my uni life again, uh, doing commerce, majoring in accounting. And I actually really did enjoy it. And I got to learn a whole new side to accounting. So I used to think it was that old school bean counter, just pushing out profit and loss statements and I started to learn all the things around management accounting and strategic advising and really more of the business side of accounting that you could go into, not just be a data entry tax tax agent um, person. So I really started to enjoy the strategy side of accounting and the storytelling with numbers. Um, so you are so clever. You've got all these great (laughs) skills that are going to be so useful for the rest of your life, particularly when you're running EWIT. So, okay. So, um, what happened next? Uh, so yes, I started working for the family company, got my accounting qualifications. Um, and then that's when dad said, let's go into the factory. And so at the age of 29, I was a qualified accountant found my love for welding, was starting to think about why are women not going into the trade-based industries, and then I had a life-changing horse riding accident. So I was training to go to the World Equestrian Games, and up until this point, my career was just literally to pay for my horses. That's what my real love was, my horses, and I wanted to represent Australia 
my dad sailed for Australia, so I always wanted to get my own jacket, um, uh, yeah, Australian okay. jacket. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so it was a very cold July evening and I was training with my coach and my young horse decided that she didn't want to train anymore. So she slammed the brakes on and she reared up vertically and I came off and she fell down on top of me. So all 600 kilos came down and crushed me physically, mentally, emotionally. So I was airlifted to Alfred Hospital and informed I may never walk again in any meaningful way and that I was to spend at least six months in hospital recovering. Oh, um, my three, God, Hacia. Yeah, three that months. Was that was huge. Massive. Three months of that was completely non-weight-bearing. So I, um, the first time I stood on land was 117 days after the horse riding accident. Was that um, terrifying or were you excited or what, what was it no, like that uh, first day standing up? Other was, than I imagine you got a bit dizzy. <laughs> yeah, I was dizzy. It was absolutely painful. It was probably one of the hardest things I've done. Oh, just honey. pushing through that pain and um, also the, the mental barrier because a lot of people, a lot of medical people were setting yes. my expectations pretty low that I wouldn't be able to stand, I wouldn't be able to walk and that I had to really reset my mindset to one of a person that was probably going to live in a wheelchair. So not only was I that first time I stood up pushing through the physical, it was also all of this outside external noise saying you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. However, if there's (laughs) anything that anyone will have learned from listening to this interview so far is for anyone else that might turn them off, but for you I bet it just fired you up. Yeah, it did. I was like, no, I've got too No one's going to tell me. Yeah, yeah I've gonna... got too many beautiful high heels at home that I'm going oh. to be wearing again. <laughs> um, but it's tough. And yeah. you do. I just yeah. have to say that you did turn up with your walker at the gala night saying, whatever happens, I'm putting on these shoes even if I don't move in them, <laughs> which exactly. I thought was amazing. Exactly. And they were skyscrapers. They were such. <laughs> skyscrapers and I was only about three weeks out of a full right hip replacement so yes I'm definitely back in the high heels um but that accident changed everything so that accident I discovered positive psychology because I got very depressed and very anxious in hospital and my psychiatrist actually put me on to positive psychology which now I'm studying a master's in applied positive psychology oh wow and absolutely it And it also gave me time to really think about this barrier that women kept saying to me because I started researching why women were not going into the trades and they were just saying it's just not an opportunity for us. We either can't get hired, we don't understand how to enter the industry and when I had an opportunity taken away from me that we all think we have a right to access, which is walking, I got really emotionally connected to what these women were saying that an opportunity they should have a right to access, which is financially lucrative career pathways within the trade-based industries, is being actively taken away from them. I just started to, I guess, channel a lot of my anger about my situation into what was happening. And I'm like, how can I fix this? How can we open up the opportunities, open up the pathways, change the mindset of the industry to see women as actually value-added, not as a risk 
because uh, a lot of employers out there still see employing women as a danger because of sexual oh, I know. policies or, you know, all they of don't these think, They don't think that about a 16-year-old boy who's got no experience, but they do think that about a woman. It's quite weird. Exactly. So, or they're going to have maternity. They're going to take time off to have a baby, which are, you know, it's like, Yeah, well, maybe in 10 years or 15 years, you don't need to really worry about it now. So how exactly. do you... How did you go about what what happened that helped like how did ewit start what how did you get started in this? Did you go and find an employer and say, "Would you employ women if I found them or what do you, what did you do? No, so I came out of hospital and I'd been thinking about it a lot, and I'd realized my experience that I had in the factory was so valuable that I got to experience a range of different trades to find the trade that I loved, which is welding. And so I started thinking about that, okay, it's that exposure. There's pre-apprenticeships and things out there, but they're already too long and they're too narrow because you've got to choose to do a pre-apprenticeship in a certain trade. Right. But if you don't even know anything about welding or plumbing or electrical, why will you sign up to a 12-week pre-apprenticeship? So I saw a real gap in the market for these tasters and shorter experiences and then understanding positive psychology as well bringing that into the trades to really encourage women to have that growth mindset to start the day that they're about to experience a whole range of new things they're going to stuff up and fail like I did when I was learning to walk again but with a mindset that this is actually towards success because what positive psychology taught me in hospital every time I fell over and every time I stuffed up my walking was just another progression towards being successful because I had to learn why did I stuff up because I put my weight too far or to whatever happened I got to analyze the the reason I was failing and that got me closer and closer to succeeding so, so can I just ask pro- so, so just very quickly do boys not get that? Why do how do boys decide what they're going to choose as their trade? Why why are they expected to suddenly know that it's worth them doing a twelve week course in a stream? Do you think it's because are they taught more at school or because it sounds like something that'd be so, great for boys and girls? Yeah. So yes, schools definitely encourage if they don't see a male student being uh, a good candidate for university, they definitely encourage them to go off and have a look at the trades where a female student, they'll say, go do hairdressing or beauty or (laughs) be a nurse or things like that or a teacher. So they definitely encourage it more. But also the boys have their dads and their uncles that take them out on site. They do work experience. They help dad on the weekend. So a lot of males end up doing the trades that their father did because they just right. are taking That's the exposure in. they get. Yeah, yeah, that's the exposure that they get as well. Um, or their mates. So their mates are in a trade and then they yeah. say, come and help me for a day or would you like to pick up some um, labouring work on the site that I'm working on? And that kind of, I guess, boys club just naturally yeah. invites men into that environment where the other day I had a woman on the phone who's been looking for a carpentry apprenticeship and we're in a massive skill shortage at the moment for tradespeople. She'd rung up 37 carpentry companies, all advertising for apprentices and all refusing to give her an interview. No, Hacia, really? 37? 
37. Wow. How demoral. I mean, the other thing is that the women that they do get must be amazing because they've gone through so much to get there. Oh, the women, the tradeswomen out there, I just get goosebumps when I meet some of them. Most of them, actually, because they're so courageous. A lot of them are the only female on site. Yeah. They've got the weight of representing all women because if they stuff up, then they're going to say, oh, it was because she's a woman. That's right. The boss will go, there's no way we're having another woman apprentice. Exactly, exactly. Wow. So there's a lot of pressure on women. There's a lot of pressure to prove themselves. You know, they work twice twice as hard as the guys to be able to prove that they can do it. They've got to be very innovative sometimes in the way that they do their trades because they aren't as physically strong as men. So they've got to find other ways of doing certain things. Like or... exercise their brain muscles, which we, which we women are very good at exercising. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But there's an amazing place for them. And once a lot of employers give a woman a chance and then you start to hear the feedback, oh, wow, we're already seeing changes in our culture or she's actually found a way to do something better than we were doing it or she's pointed out some unsafe practices that we were just, you know, mindlessly doing. And it's amazing what starts to happen with that diversity and bringing in more of those feminine traits of, of you know, being conscious of safety, having more empathy, being able to diffuse some uh, situations where yes. it could have become a very aggressive conversation and the True. woman's handled it. Um, especially and maybe multitasking as well, because I mean we know guys aren't great with that, but women can kind of do three things at once. So yeah, there'd be exactly. some of that as well. Amazing. And so, um, all right. So I interrupted you because you were talking about how how did you actually set it up? What how yes. did, what did you have to do? <clears throat> so um, came back after my accident, working in the family company, and part of my uh, role, I'd work myself work my way up to the chief commercial officer of the family company and part of my role was exactly how do we get innovative around future proofing the factory because it's getting harder and harder to find fitter and turners and welders and things like that. So I started okay. speaking to a lot of the local schools, uh, career counsellors around where our family factory is and they had no idea what a fitter and turner did or a boiler maker or even welders. They were like, we don't really know. We just tell the kids, go be plumbers, go be electricians, go be carpenters. Um, right. So I thought, okay, what we should do is set up an entity that can bring these kids in to actually start to see what the environment looks like, have a little bit of a crack at doing some of these trades, uh, connect them in with a TAFE school as well and start to just educate the career councils and the students. And the accountant in me knew that we'd be dealing with maybe council money or government money, so I wanted to set up an entity that was separate to our family company and put a governing board in place and everything. In our first board meeting, when I presented the strategy, they're like, this is not a local community, you no, know. No, not at all. Thing. Go back and rethink a lot bigger because this is not just a Darabin Council community thing. Um, so that was, 
yeah, that was the start of a wild ride and now we're almost two and two and a bit years later and we're doing programs in Victoria and New South Wales and it's a lot bigger than I originally thought it was going to be. And I, and I would say it's probably a drop in the ocean for what it will become as well. Yeah. And so do you work in it full time now, Hacia? So I have to, I do a lot of keynote speaking as well. So at the moment yeah. I still have to do consulting and keynote speaking to keep the, the lights on. Oh, the dollars coming in. The yep. dollars coming in. So between my keynote speaking, some consulting, I'm also doing my master's. Then I also, we've got two full-time employees that work in uh, the Empowered Women in Trades group. And then, right. yes, I dedicate every other minute that I'm not on a keynote speaking stage or head in the books or with a consulting client to the business. Amazing. Well, you're absolutely going to be the golden girl of women in construction, I reckon, oh, thank um, as you. time goes. I just think I just think that's extraordinary. And I love your background that's led you here because it kind of <laughs> makes sense. Um, although having that horse horse riding accident in the middle, I don't, yeah. That's a whole other thing again, that you really are amazing. Okay, so <clears throat> along this journey, um, one of the things that I like to ask, particularly in your case, because you are in an industry that is so male-dominated, have there been women that have helped you? Are there women that you can tell us about that have done something to help you, or has it really all been the blokes? No, it's amazing. So we've got an incredible community of women whether they're tradeswomen themselves that really support through donating their time to come and be a keynote speaker or to mentor some of the women coming through the program. Um, yeah. Other women that are like our, our amazing chair who volunteers her time to be the chair of our board. She's absolutely yes. incredible. And there's been so many incredible women within the construction industry and manufacturing industry as well as um, outside of it that have given me uh, emotional support, mental support, guidance, just picked me up on my oh, feet so and told blessed. me to keep going when, you know, I've had those teary moments of what the hell am I doing? Why am I taking on the biggest boys club in Australia? I'm just so <laughs> glad that you do have those teary moments because it is, yeah, it's a massive boys club and you're really trying to make some very dramatic change in something that, you know, in Australia, I mean, I didn't grow up in Australia, but in Australia, trades are so important and you're right, they, it's literally a boys club and they haven't really ever even opened the door a tiny chink for women. So what you're no. doing is is super important because, and you're making it these women much more visible to all the rest of the trades so that other guys are going to start thinking, surely at some stage they're going to go, oh my God, I've exhausted all my options in terms of men. I'm just going to have to go and find, you know, is there a woman welder out there because I can't find a bloke? And hopefully, you know, what you're doing will really change things and change the way that they think about it. Yeah. Um, so so along the way, have you had, I, I, I call them pivotal moments only because, I don't know, that word pivot was around in <laughs> the lockdowns. <laughs> but I guess what I'm talking about is we all set up our businesses and we think it's all going to go swimmingly and nearly always there are situations that you get yourself into and you just go, oh, my God, I don't know if we're going to be able to survive this. And often it then makes you go in a different direction that you can look back later and go, well, you know, even though it was really tough at the time, um, it was quite good. Have you had any moments like that where you've had to sort of change the direction a little bit of EWIT? 
Very much so, and especially being uh, a startup company, I've placed trust in the wrong people sometimes, and you know, I've been ripped off here and there. I'm not a marketing yep. expert, so um, in the early days, trying to work out how to do all of that kind of stuff, I've definitely partnered with the wrong people organizations um, right yeah partnered with the wrong organizations um you're very alone at the beginning so I think some of my decisions was just because I felt so alone I didn't know what to do I felt so overwhelmed so I just partnered with the first kind of consultant that came across my way uh yeah. so now I'm a lot more I take my time I really make sure my values and anyone that we partner with, whether that's employing someone or partnering with them or taking them on as a consultant, really align with the values of what we're wanting to do because I've learnt that the hard way and it costs me money. Um, oh, yeah. I've, I reckon almost every – one of the things I think about with women in business particularly, and this is a big broad generalisation, but I do think we trust way too easily. I have done it. A gazillion times. In fact, I met someone just the other day and I said, oh, we sh you should be my partner. I've got this great program and I'm looking for someone to do it with. And I thought, I've actually only met you on a Zoom. I do this all the time where it's sort of misplaced and you do need those. You need to have people. Uh, I was going to say fuck you over, but I probably shouldn't say that too <laughs> because of the swearing. But mess you around to realise that, you know, you've got to learn from that and not necessarily trust everyone at face value. So that's really exactly. interesting. And you also, at the beginning, you're starting to learn what your vision looks like as well. And people will come in there and want to take your vision and turn it into their vision as well. And sometimes so you're a true. bit starstruck and you think these people, um, they know, these better, people than know better than me. Yeah. They've been around. <laughs> I should be listening to them. But you've got to also come back to what your gut's telling you. And if that gut saying no to whatever that advice is, you know, yep. take all advice with a grain of salt. All advice is given from that other person's perspective, that other person's experience, that other person's right. knowledge and everything like that. And but if you're breaking the mould, which you kind of are, or if anyone out there is trying to make change happen, then other people who advise you, particularly the ones you'd normally go to, who are the ones who are very experienced, maybe a bit older, are the ones who will have these entrenched ideas of this is the way it's done. You can't do it that way because it doesn't work that way. And you go, well, actually, I think it does, and I'm happy to break what's normal because I think it can work. But, exactly. yeah. It, there's it, no roadmap. Like there's no, no roadmap out there. And if someone tries to tell you that there is, then you're not being innovative because if you're following a roadmap, then it's already been laid that's out right, for that's you. That's right. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, so when you um, are as driven as you are and you're doing your master's and you're, you know, learning to walk and doing all these operations and running EWIT and probably a gazillion other things, how do you stop yourself burning out? Because one of the things, well, I just have to tell you, one of the interesting things is that I think I've interviewed about 250 women now and I reckon at least half of them started as lawyers. I don't know <laughs> what it is about the law, but it breeds a lot of entrepreneurial women. But how do you – the other thing I've realised is a lot of women burn out, like literally, you know, can't get out of bed and then often will, you know, spend a year in bed or six months in bed or whatever because they've really pushed themselves way, way too hard and it's affected their health. Yep. How do you do that juggle so that that doesn't happen to you? 
So I use a positive psychology framework called PERMA, which focuses on making sure you've got lots of positive emotions in your life. So surrounding myself with people that gives me positive emotions and not those uh, what I call energy vampires, those people you walk away (laughs) from and you're like, oh my gosh, that was draining. So I make sure as much as I can in my work life and definitely my personal life, it's people that create positive energy that I'm always doing something that I'm engaged in. And my master's gives me a lot of that engagement energy, the the topics. I'm always reading books and everything like that, that I just lose my time. I just, oh my gosh, I've been reading for a couple of hours. So that real engagement, again, looking at those relationships and instead of trying to have a lot of mini relationships or catch up with uh, so many different people is really spends quality time with a small handful of core people and be really vulnerable with them. Open up and say, I'm having a tough time. I'm having a tough day. Instead of going out to dinner, could you just come over to my house so I can stay in my PJs, we'll get a pizza, we'll drink a bottle of wine. And if I want to have a cry on the couch, I can have a cry on a couch. So those real authentic, genuine uh, relationships. And then looking at meaning, like the real meaning in life and and taking that in every day when I walk my dogs. I'm so grateful that I can walk. I just take in the the environment and, and take that moment of absolute gratitude, which leads into the A of PERMA, which is achievement. So every day I celebrate getting up, making the bed, taking the dogs for a walk. I don't have to wait for an award or something to celebrate the achievement. And when I am feeling burnt out, and low, those are the days that I say, well done, you've gotten up, you've had a shower, you've made the bed, you've taken the dog for a walk, you've already done four things today, you're slaying it, like well done. And I've learned that from recovering from my surgery. Sometimes success was just standing up for 10 seconds and that's all I did for the whole day and that was what success looked like. So it's really celebrating your achievements and whether that's making the bed that that day then bloody well yeah. celebrate that you've made the bed like it doesn't have to be a, oh, a, a, I love this. a gold medal okay so what's the rest of it you'll just have to quickly take us through we haven't got that long but I want to hear if well, that's, that's it. is positive and a is achievement what's the r m and a so the r yeah the r is the relationships um yep. the m is meaning and the E is engagement. So that's having right. that kind of when those times where you lose track of time is really yeah. important. So, yeah, there's different surveys. So if PERMA, if you look at a PERMA survey online, you can answer some questions and see which element you're actually low in. So right. probably every couple of weeks I do that survey and I see where I'm low at and if I'm low in positive emotion, then I make sure I'm doing something that brings that positive emotion up. If I'm low in achievement, I know I've been beating myself up a lot and haven't been celebrating my achievements. So, yeah, every couple right. of weeks I do the PERMA survey as a bit of a, a well-being check. That's brilliant, Hacey. God, you're just, you are honestly an extraordinary woman and all these little gems that you're dropping, uh, it's fabulous. Um okay here's one out of left field Mm -hmm. is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you'd be up for sharing 
Yes. <laughs> I love trance music. So oh, <laughs> I know right. I'm a lawyer turned accountant, but I love, absolutely love trance music and going to um, trance trance parties and clubs and having a good dance and getting my glow sticks out and oh brilliant so yeah I'm a little rave bunny (laughs) you are a little rave bunny that's great okay so what amazing woman you are thank you so so much for this interview can you tell everyone if they wanted to get hold of you who would be no doubt at all anyone listening will know a brilliant keynote speaker but also just to talk about women in trades or because they're interested in getting into the trades themselves. Tell us all the different ways we can get hold of you. No email addresses, but you can tell people websites and things. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, the only social media I'm personally active on is LinkedIn. So you can find my LinkedIn profile there. My yep. website for myself is com, which is H-A-C-I-A is how you spell my name. Where does Hacia come from, by the way? Where, where, where is that? So it's this um, ancient Hebrew name that my mum found, and it means protected ah. by God. Oh, I love it. It's just really unusual. It's lovely. Yeah. Really lovely word. Okay, sorry. So com. what else? Yep. And then for all of the trade stuff, that's through Empowered Women in Trade. So that's on um, Instagram. So E-W-I Trades with an S. So you can find yep. us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website is ewitrades.com. Um, and that's how you can reach out uh, to find out more about the trade side of everything. Wow. Honestly, Hacia, thank you so much. I can't wait to share this. You really are amazing. <laughs> and I, I know for a fact that there are people who listen to this with their young daughters in the car because they, they send me messages going, you know, it's great for my daughter to hear all these people. So I can't wait for some young girl to hear this and go, I'm going to go and try the trades. At least go and experience them because I wish I had. I mean, I I agree with you. I think it's one of those things that all girls should have exposure to if they want to give it a go. Exactly. And just because you start your career on the tools doesn't mean you end your career on the tools. Like there's amazing project managers out there, construction managers, manufacturing managers that all started their career on the tools and now they you know, they're in their 40s or 50s and they've moved into the corporate side of the industry, which is just as fun as being on the tools. So a lot of people seem to think, oh, if I'm going to do an apprenticeship, I'm going to die on the tools, which is just not true. No, but I mean, you need to kind of give it a go, I guess, in order to be able to manage people who are doing it or become project managers or whatever. So um, good place to start and then move on from there. Yeah, exactly. I love it. As you saw from my career, there's no straight line. I just, my advice is have a crack and follow right. follow your heart, stay true to your values. And if you're in a career or an industry that's not aligning with your values, just you have to leave and go and try something else because it's just not good for your well-being as I, that's why I kept leaving industries because they just did not align with my personal values and I lost <laughs> but, too much well, of myself. Well, that's right. And your story of the poor woman lawyer. I mean, I can't even, I can't even believe that. No. So, uh, yeah, I can, under- well, I love it that you didn't stick it out, actually, that you did decide that this wasn't going to be right for you. And I have heard so many stories that I do hope that at some stage, somebody, some huge gust of wind comes in and just clears out that whole industry and brings it into the 21st century. Because 
Because really, the legal profession is way behind, isn't it? It's just steeped in in 18th century attitudes. Exactly, which is, <laughs> yeah, and that, look, the construction industry's also got some very, very some outdated. Some old dinosaurs in there. Yeah, yeah. some very outdated uh, concepts of what people shouldn't shouldn't do. Yeah, well, look, thank you so, so much. Uh, this has just been great. And I hope that you've inspired a couple of women to give it a go. Exactly. You know, if someone sells, as I always say, if someone tells you you can't do something, do it twice and take photos. Yes. That's one of my little memes that I share in the group as well. Thanks so much, Asia. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.